0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 41 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 11th of November. And Leon, quite apart from the election of Donald Trump, we're going to be talking to Levi Aaron of Deliveroo, the uh, mob you see delivering good food around the cities of Melbourne, Sydney, London, and elsewhere.
1: Yes, uh, Levi Aaron is the Australian country manager for the global startup Deliveroo. He's going to be talking to us all about the business. And after that, we're going to have a fascinating chat with economist Saul Eslake. And he's going to be assessing the impact of Donald Trump's election victory on the markets, the global economy, and the Australian economy.
0: Yep. In other words, what he's going to be talking about is the fact that all bets are off. That's right. So, um... How bad it'll be, we don't know. Okay, well, let's listen to Levi Aaron and where Deliveroo
1: came from and where it's going. Levi, uh, how many restaurants does Deliveroo Deliveroo have on
2: board? So currently, uh, Deliveroo has 1,700 restaurants on board around Australia.
1: And how long did it take you to get that up?
2: We launched Deliveroo in Australia in November. Um, We started off first just in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, with a small crew sort of working with the restaurants and, and growing that over time. Um, and we were able to open up Brisbane in April um, and more recently just in August, Perth and then Gold Coast. Um, so it's been phenomenal growth over the last, you know, almost almost one year. Um, And we're really excited about what the next year holds as well.
1: So uh, I take it these are restaurants that don't normally do home delivery. Is that right?
2: Yeah, correct. So the delivery model predominantly works with restaurants that don't do delivery. And by that very notion, these are usually restaurants that are high-end or gourmet sort of restaurants that you wouldn't associate with delivery normally. These are restaurants that you would go with your friends or family to visit and to enjoy as patrons um, usually a couple times a month. But, But now you have the opportunity to have them delivered to your house or home that same great-tasting, healthy food.
1: How exactly does the delivery bu- delivery business work?
2: Oh, so delivery for business is a new product that we've just launched recently, and that, that is focusing more on sort of your workplace. So we're looking at firms, whether it be law firms or agencies or companies, um, that has become a trend of recent that – people in, in companies are getting perks where they may be able to um, order food after a certain time of the of the evening and the company may give them, um, you know, a sort of allowance to use. Or it might be people who are, you know, getting a bit tired of bringing the old sandwich to work and want to have a change for lunch or, or, or have something a little bit more exciting. So we've recognized that from the data that we've looked at with all our customers, you know, who are coming back to us every single day and ordering food. And, and we've notified or we've had a look at those customers and we've recognized that there is, you know, a huge segment that is coming from the corporate sort of market from the you know the people who go to work every day whether it's during the day or at night and so we've isolated that down and and worked with those businesses to provide a product that can enable them to actually order through one platform Um, so if there's five of you ordering you don't all have to five pay and do it separately it brings it into one place it makes it better for businesses who might have to put expenses through Um, so overall it's giving the consumer um, and sort of the corporate consumer um, a lot more choice and helping companies who want to sort of work with expensing these type of um, meals or other sort of services through one system
1: so delivery makes its money from the people ordering
2: so yes the delivery makes its money from there is a fee that's taken for delivery and that's a five dollar flat fee for the delivery itself Um, and it also works with the restaurant um, and there's a certain percentage that's taken from the restaurant as well
0: how does payment work is it an uber style thing where you uh log their credit card
2: so it's very much on demand like uh if you look at many of the apps that we use these days that you turn on your app you put in your, your your details and then it becomes cashless. So, the, your credit card details are tokenized so it's secure and safe um, and then what happens is every time you come back to the app, it's a one, two, three step process for you to choose your restaurant, choose the menu item that you want or the menu items that you want and check out and your food is on its way and that's something that you can track through the app, you can watch the driver going from the restaurant to you, the streets that he or she is going down so that you can rest assured your food is on its way and there's a countdown clock showing you how far away that food is. The actual uh, ride, do you have riders? Yes, yeah, so we Delivery. We, we only work with uh, bike riders um, or scooters slash mo- uh, motorbikes. So we're looking at two-wheel transport. And the reason why we work with two-wheel transport um, is twofold. One reason is that we are very conscious that as a you know growing company with many riders out on the road, both here in Australia and, and globally, um, that we were conscious of our carbon footprint, we're conscious of as we grow, doing the right thing by the environment. That's one reason. The other reason that we work with bikes or scooters or or, or motorbikes is because the ease of getting to the restaurant and to the customer. What you don't want to be doing is putting food in cars. They have to park and wait. And it makes the the travel time for the food from the restaurant to the customer extended. So if you look at what we do with Deliveroo, on average, from the restaurant to the customer is about a six to seven minute journey. And we're confident with that journey with our riders and with the insulated bags that we use to carry the food, that your food will have at the optimum temperature that it needs to be. Tell, tell us about the riders. I mean, how do you recruit them? Yeah, so we have all different types of riders. Um, so we have riders that that might be in university looking to earn a bit of cash um, while they're studying. Um, we have riders who are working uh, day jobs or at night, deciding to ride at night. Um, you know, our busiest times are in the evenings um, as people are, you know, working late at night or they're coming back at home. We have people who decide to work on the weekends. We have company owners who are doing this on the side we have regular employees who are looking this as an add-on way to get extra income um and also the university students so if we're looking at that um We have, you know, probably a good balance of female and male sort of uh, applicants who come through every single day asking to ride for Deliveroo, Um, and we we target that through advertising that we do, through the internet, um, and through handing out leaflets for um, people who may be interested in riding for Deliveroo. It's a great way to ride and to get fit and get paid, so we seem to have an abundance of people applying every day.
1: So I take it these uh, riders are contractors, they're not employees, is that right?
2: Yeah, correct. These are these are uh, independent contractors. What they want is flexibility. So, as mentioned before, many of them are working um, in other jobs or, or as employees elsewhere. Um, and what they want to do is add on, you know, a few more a few more bucks to, to to their back pocket. And they're doing that by choosing which hours they want to work. So they might decide to turn on on a Thursday night. They have an app. They can turn that on, and then if an order is available, it will ping onto their app. They choose if they want to accept it or or, or reject it. If they accept it, then they're getting paid at that time to do that delivery. So if they do a delivery, they get paid uh, a fee to do that delivery. And if they choose to reject it, they can go back and watch TV or hang out with their friends and do something else. So the really what we know from our riders that want flexibility, they want to be able to turn on and turn off when they'd like to.
0: Your customers would be principally in the centre of, of a major city like Sydney and Melbourne, would they?
2: Yeah, so we started out in the centres. Um, so we, we looked at sort of population densities, places that have lots of restaurants, um, and traditionally that is sort of your, your city centres, your metropolitan sort of areas. And that's where we start off as delivery, both overseas, and in Australia, servicing the needs of sort of the growing, um, densely populated area. However, over the last year or two, uh, we have been expanding those. So in Australia in the last year, we have now opened to other areas. If we look at Sydney, we've opened up Manly recently in in Melbourne, Victoria. We've opened up Ringwood. So these areas aren't, you know, your CBD areas. These are areas that are a bit of outer suburbs. And what we do is work with the restaurants, work with the population that is there in order to do that service. And the third element is what we're doing now is something called Rubox. So we're going to areas that are not near restaurants, and these are new developments that are being built uh, where there's great residents, good population. Um, who are usually drive 45 minutes or an hour to get to work. Uh, but they recognize these great brands. So we're working with great restaurant brands, bringing them out and doing something called Roo Box, where we actually build kitchens. These aren't pop-ups. These are restaurants that will be there for six months or a year, where restaurants... Um, it'll be a delivery-only situation. So we have top brands coming to an area that can then service that area too. So you do want to spread this further um, and as far as the customer demands it.
1: Now, I have to ask you this, but you'd be competing against others, uh, notably Uber Eats, for example. I mean, how do you distinguish yourself from those?
2: Yeah, so very interesting that you raised that. I think we, we have a lot of respect for Uber. Uber has grown their business in a very short amount of time, and we look at that with great respect. Um, but however, I think if we look at what we do, we focus on what one thing. And that's the one thing we've been doing for the last three to four years. And that is, we focus on food, I, I think it's one thing to move, you know, something from A to B, it's another thing to understand the intricacies of what goes on in one kitchen versus another kitchen, how to pick that up from inside a restaurant, then to deliver that to a customer, whether they be at street level or through an apartment building or up uh, you know, a building block in the city um, in the middle of the CBD. So what we do is we understand restaurant prep times, our, our algorithms, our technology has been specifically built for the restaurants um, and for that whole journey for the customer. So I think that is one of our unique selling points, if you want to call it that. And the other part is that that experience that, we have of dealing with food for the last four years. We understand that some food travel better than other food. We understand the packaging that needs to be used. So we sit with our restaurants and we discuss with them what packaging. As mentioned before, many of them don't Deliver or haven't delivered in the past. And so packaging is something they haven't thought about. So we need to work with them and packaging suppliers to create the best packaging that's right for their product. So what are your growth projections? Well, currently we've been growing at about 30 to 35% month on month since we started um, in November, which is phenomenal growth. And probably one of the biggest challenges that we have is managing that growth. You know, as you grow, what we are concentrating on, what we are focused on, is building a sustainable business. And that's a business that's sustainable for the restaurants we're working with, for the riders, and for the consumers that they can. And bank on be able to rely on us time and time again. So our growth projections for probably the next six months um, are to continue doing the growth that we're doing at that 30%, at that 35% growth rate in Australia. And as we open up more areas, we are looking at expanding um, into further cities within Australia. But then if we look at the current cities that we're in, which is Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Gold Coast and Perth, we look at expanding our services further within within those existing cities.
0: Lastly, Levi, did you start in Australia? I gathered from something you said earlier that you have other um, operations in other countries.
2: Yes, the delivery is actually started in London. So it started um, just under four years ago in London. Um, and was focused on the UK and the UK expansion for the first year or two of its business. In the last year, it's expanded last uh, 12 to 18 months. We've taken an international um, step up. In that in that step up, we've looked at um, looked at many different countries. And the countries that we've opened up in the last year include Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, Dubai. Italy, further expanding in uh, in Germany, France um, is is a major country for us. But overall, there are 12 countries um, that Deliveroo currently operates in, um, and that has been ongoing for some time. Levi, thank you very much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.
0: It's an interesting concept, isn't it, Leon? The uh, eat at home, but eat good food from restaurants.
1: That's right, yeah. uh, And it's going to actually challenge restaurants around the world, particularly if they're delivering stuff from restaurants that don't usually deliver.
0: Well, that's true. You know, suddenly you can uh, get something delivered up at home. So now, Saul Eslake and how he sees the crump-itis that's hit America.
1: Saul Eslake, Donald Trump has become the 44th. Fifth U.S. president that uh, sent markets into a tailspin yesterday, although I noticed uh, the U.S. market picked up slightly. What's your view about how this is going to affect markets and the economy? Well, the first
3: point is that financial markets had not expected Trump to win any more than they had expected the British people to vote to leave the European Union at the Brexit referendum earlier this year. and. As is almost always the case, when something happens which financial markets had not anticipated, there's a significant reaction to it, positively or negatively, according to whether they think the thing which has happened will be good or bad news. And in Asia, in particular, the unequivocal verdict of the financial markets was that the prospect of Trump becoming the 45th president of the United States was bad news. And that's understandable particularly in the light of Mr. Trump's campaign pledges to, in effect, launch a trade war with China by declaring it a currency manipulator, a charge which has an element of truth in it, of course, although more as a matter of history than recent developments, and under existing law, that is, without requiring the approval of the Congress, even though the Republican Party is now likely to control both houses after uh, Mr. Trump becomes president, but without requiring any further congressional approval, Mr. Trump can under existing law impose tariffs of up to 46, 45% on everything that China sells in the United States. And it would be hard to believe that China wouldn't retaliate to that in some way by imposing barriers on US exports to China, even though they're much smaller than US imports from China. The Peterson Institute in Washington, DC did a study of the possible effects of these measures and concluded that they could result in the US economy falling into recession, pushing the US unemployment rate up to 8.6% by 2019 compared with the current level of about 5%. And almost certainly, the effects on other economies would be in some cases, even greater. There's a lot for Australia to worry about, about the potential implications for us of a trade war between our biggest and our third biggest trading partners. It's hard to see how any good could come for us out of all of that. The US markets themselves, when they opened, however, took a different view from the Asian markets and In the early trading in Europe, that might have been partly because prices of pharmaceutical company stocks rose quite strongly on the basis that they would now not be subject to the tighter regulation that Hillary Clinton had proposed in the course of her campaign. And it would seem that Others in the US financial markets have taken heart from some of the proposals that Donald Trump made during the campaign that he said would boost economic growth, including big tax cuts for US companies, much the same way as Malcolm Turnbull and the coalition argued during the Australian election campaign uh, earlier this year, and a major program of infrastructure spending. Now, many economists worry that the combination of those two things things would result in a greatly enlarged U.S. budget deficit and higher U.S. interest rates, but for the time being at least, equity market investors in the US appear to be focusing on the possibility that that could result in higher rates of economic growth than the US has achieved over the years since the end of the recession following the global financial crisis of 2007-9. We have to wait and see what the impact of all of those things will be. There are two other aspects of Donald Trump's platform that I and other economists do find troubling. The first of those is Mr. Trump's attitude to the Federal Reserve, which is, after all, the custodian of the world's principal reserve currency, the US dollar. Mr. Trump made a number of highly personal attacks on Janet Yellen, the chair of the Federal Reserve, accusing her of holding down US interest rates at the behest of President Obama in order to help the Democrats candidate in the presidential election campaign. And it may well be that Janet Yellen finds it difficult to continue serving chairman of the Fed under a Trump administration. Even if she continues, her term expires at the beginning of 2018, and it's unlikely that President Trump would see fit to reappoint her, given what he said about her. There are also two vacancies on the Federal Reserve Board, which the Republican-controlled Congress refused to allow President Obama's administration to fill. So President Trump has an early opportunity to reshape the Fed, in accordance with his particular instincts. That is troubling because Donald Trump has also lent his support to the Audit the Fed movement promoted by Rand Paul and others on the fringe of the Republican Party in Congress. And by auditing the Fed, Rand Paul and presumably Donald Trump don't mean making sure that the Fed's financial reports present a true and correct record of its affairs, but rather seeking greater scope for political interference in the monetary policy decision-making of the Federal Reserve, which runs counter to the whole idea over the last 25 years that monetary policy decisions are likely to be made more sensibly if they're made free of political interference. That, I think, does threaten to undermine market confidence in the U.S. central bank, and that would in turn be negative for the U.S. dollar and probably result in higher long-term U.S. interest rates. The other concern is that, Mr. Trump's attitude to the U.S.'s longstanding military alliances with European countries in the form of NATO and with Japan and South Korea in our region, in Asia, suggests that the geopolitical environment in both of those parts of the world and possibly in the Middle East as well are going to become much more uncertain. Mr. Trump has said he might not honor guarantees that the U.S. has previously given to the security of countries in those parts of the world that he might expect them to, quote, pay, unquote, for the services that the U.S. provides for them. He threatened to pull U.S. troops out of Japan and South Korea and suggested that those two countries and others besides such as Saudi Arabia should acquire their own nuclear weapons. Uh, That, as I say, risks heightening uncertainty about the medium to longer term political stability of important parts of the world. And that in turn can't be conducive to businesses making. Making long term investment decisions. So, although the initial verdict of the US financial markets was much more sanguine than the response of Asian financial markets to the election outcome, I still think there are more things to be worried about as a result of Donald Trump becoming the President of the United States than there are things to be hopeful about.
1: Certainly, uh, you would say that there would be greater uncertainty and uh, higher risk premiums, wouldn't there? I mean, volatility is likely to stay ele- elevated relative to recent levels. Uh,
3: Yes, I think that's right, and that's reflected, among other things, in the rise in the gold price, for example, as well as in market-based measures of volatility, such as the VIX index. Um, These judgments may change as the shape of a Trump administration emerges. There will be a lot of attention now paid to who he selects as his key economic advisors, his Treasury Secretary, the Secretary of the State, the Secretary of State and the like. We really don't have many insights into who those might be. If he picks people who, unlike himself, have political experience, uh, known quantities, are respected and trusted by people within the United States as well as by leaders and others abroad, then maybe some of the concerns that I've just expressed will not be so keenly felt once Mr. Trump actually takes over the government of the United States on the 20th of January next year. If, on the other hand, he picks people who are either Unknown quantities, or who, though known, are known for their unfavourable characteristics rather than for their judgement and experience, then we could see more of what we saw in Asian financial markets as the election results were becoming clearer.
1: And uh, for that matter, we could be seeing what's been happening with the pound repeated here, where it, it goes up, it goes down, and then it goes sideways for a while, And uh, but the trend is downwards. Well, yes,
3: that's right. Um, some people have said that the financial markets overreacted to the outcome of the Brexit referendum in late. June, and in particular that the UK economy hasn't gone into recession, as some people warned and inferred from the financial market's reaction. The stock market in the UK in particular has, at least in sterling terms, recovered all of the losses that it sustained immediately after the Brexit vote, although the pound has, after its initial sharp decline, experienced some further declines over the last couple of months. Of course, there are a couple of important differences here. One is that that Brexit actually hasn't happened yet, uh, and it won't until April 2019 at the earliest, and it may not even happen at all in the form that was originally envisaged in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote. Whereas you know, we do know with certainty that uh, Mr. Trump will become the President of the United States in just over two months' time. The second thing, of course, is that the United States is much more important to the world as a whole than the United Kingdom is, and what happens in the United States, for better or worse, uh, has a much more important influence on the world as a whole and in particular on our region here in Asia and in the Pacific than whatever happens in the northwest corner of Europe with the United Kingdom does.
1: So, Les Lake, it's been a delight talking to you as always. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. Well, Leon, it's—I uh, don't think anybody can really predict it, can they?
1: What's for sure is it's, uh there's going to be a lot, a lot of uh, volatility out there. It's, uh, it's greater uncertainty, higher risk premium, and volatile, volatility is likely to stay rel- uh, elevated relative to recent levels.
0: And the fact. That the United States population The country, north and south Between rich and poor uh, Is now much more marked That's right Because that was the essence of Trump's um, win That's right So now the news
1: Well, uh, Gary Global stock markets have tumbled With the election of Donald Trump As 45th president Wrong-footing investors And they're expected to stay volatile Markets have gone into Tuesday's election Increasingly confident That Democrat Hillary Clinton Would be the victor After the FBI had cleared her Of any wrongdoing In her use for private email server. But Mr. Trump's stock win taking out states that had favoured the Democrats sent the Mexican peso down to a record low of 20.8 against the dollar, hammered stock markets around the world. In Australia, the S&P ASX 200 index fell 1.82% to 51,682.10 points. At one stage, it looked close to touching the 5,000 point mark. It was the worst day for the Australian stocks since September. The impact was felt around the world. The Nikkei 225 fell 5.4%. Hong Kong's uh, Hang Seng slipped 2.2% and Euro First 3 index was down 1.2% at the open, led by German, French and Spanish stock markets. The MSCI emerging markets index fell 2%, reflecting concerns over Trump's protectionist policies. The biggest losses were in Hong Kong, South Korea and Taiwan. Futures for the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 2.3% and futures for the CBOE Volatility Index soared 20%, signalling what's likely to be a bloodbath on Wall Street in the days ahead. The market circuit breakers might be in full swing, but after sliding the maximum allowed for the circuit breakers kicks in, futures on the S&P 500 index and European equities paired losses following Mr. Trump's surprisingly conciliatory victory speech where he pledged to be president for all Americans and the US stock market opened higher as investors digested the consequences of Trump's shock win. On the plus side, Gary, shares for defense companies, steel producers and pharmaceutical firms are trading strongly with investors expecting increased spending on infrastructure and defense and less pressure on drug prices under a Trump regime. Significantly, there was a rush for safe havens, notably gold, which surged to levels last seen since the Brexit vote in June. Gold Surge as much as 4.8% to uh, US 1,337.38 an hour And this was the biggest intraday increase since June And during his campaign, Trump vowed to negotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement Between Mexico and Canada and the United States He also, also raised the prospect of a trade war between the US and China By repeatedly promising to slap punitive tariffs on imports from China So our analysts are predicting more volatility ahead
0: Yeah, that's the least of it, I think
1: Yes, that's right. So that's what we can expect. Now, BlackRock, the world's largest money manager, has warned that Australia could lose its AAA credit rating next month if there are signs of further deterioration in the government's interim budget review. Stephen Miller, the Sydney-based head of Australian Fixed Income at BlackRock, said the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook delivered in December could be the catalyst for a ratings downgrade. And he said Australia's AAA rating was sailing pretty close to the wind. So let's see what the treasurer comes up with next month
0: yeah and he's going to he's going to have to get something
1: that's right now business conditions in australia's construction industry have fallen sharply to a 20 month low the which is worrying news for the construction industry the australian industry group housing industry association australian performance of construction index fell 5 5- Point five points to a twenty month low of forty five point nine points. Now, any number below fifty shows the sector is in contraction. This was at forty five point nine, so that's serious. And now, the drop off in apartment building was leading the decline, contracting at its steepest pace in thirty nine months. The sub index for apartment building decreased by nine point five points to thirty nine point nine points, and this was the lowest monthly result and sharpest rate of construction for the contraction for the sector since July 2013. At the same time, house building recorded a third month of decline and further. Reduction in mining and heavy industrial projects saw engineering construction slipping back into negative territory after two months of solid growth. And commercial construction declined at a sharper pace with a continuation of patchy conditions across all the major project categories. I think that's a real worry.
0: Very much. It's going to affect jobs as well at a time when unemployment and partial employment are real effects here.
1: That's right. Now, job ads rose slightly in October by just 1% after no rise in September according to the ANZ job ad series. Annual growth in job ads rose 5.2% from 3.8% in the previous month, and in trend terms, job ads rose 0.4% in October, and this was a touch lower than the 0.5% rise in September. Now, the trend annual growth in job advertisements has slowed. It's now 4.8% compared to 11.4%. The ANZ says this remains consistent with the gradual improvement in the labour market, but they're saying there's so much capacity in the labour market now that wages growth will remain low.
0: That ultimately is what was one of the problems in the US. Exactly.
1: Now the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index jumped a solid 3.2% offsetting the decline in the past two weeks. ANZ's Heads of Australian Economics, Felicity Emmett, said that's a good sign. But the Westpac Melbourne Institute Consumer Confidence Index slipped 1.1% to 101.3 and that's the first decline since July and leaves the index at its lowest level since August and that coincides with weakness in the share market with the ASX falling 4.4% over the last month and uncertainties around the US election. Also, the price of iron ore and coal, Australia's two biggest ports have gone through the roof. Spot metallurgical coal has topped $300 a tonne with the price of hard coke and coal hitting $307.20 a tonne on Tuesday. And the price of coke and coal has quadrupled since the beginning of June. And the price of iron ore is now approaching $70 a tonne. The metal bulletin has it up 4% at $67.43 a tonne, the highest level it's been since January 2015. And the big driver of the increase has been China's renewed infrastructure spending. And that's that's boosted the steel industry and steel prices.
0: Yeah, well, the China's Domestic market's important. He's doing all he can to boost it.
1: That's right. Well, higher coke and coal prices and a weaker Chinese One have also contributed. Now, BMI Research is now forecasting the iron ore price will settle in the US $50 $50 to $70 range because of strong demand from
0: China. And that won't do any harm to the budget.
1: Not at all. Now, the latest National Australia Bank surveys found clear signs of moderation in Australia's non-mining economic recovery. The survey found the business conditions index fell two points to six index points, slightly above the long-run average of five, while business confidence has slipped two points to four, below the long-run average of uh, six. Employment conditions also deteriorated, unwinding the improvements seen since May. And there was deterioration in most industry groupings, with the worst in mining, followed by transport, and manufacturing wholesale were also negative.
0: Yeah, and just remember the automotive layoffs as well.
1: Now, uh, with the banks, Westpac posted a flat... Full-year cash profit of 7.822 billion within analyst expectations, but bad loans was weighing in on the bank. Statutory net profit was down 7% to 7.445 billion. Revenue dropped 3% to 20.985 billion. Bad loans rose 49% to 1.124 billion. The bank says cash earnings growth was little changed due to this higher impairment charge, mostly for a smaller number of large companies in the first half of the year. The impairments dragged down Westpac's institutional cash earnings by 245 million from. billion, and the bank's exposures, including trouble law firm Slater and Gordon, steelmaker Arium, but the payout to shareholders was up up slightly. A final dividend of uh, 94 cents was declared, unchanged from the interim uh, dividend 2016, taking the full year payout to 188 cents, which is one cent higher than uh, the previous year.
0: Yeah, all the banks are doing everything they can to keep the dividend up.
1: That's right. Now, in a trading update, the Commonwealth Bank has booked a 2.4 billion dollars for the quarter that figure is the same as the number reported in the same period last year. It's absolutely flat, signalling the market that Australia's biggest bank is on the way, though, to achieving a figure like the cash profit of $9.45 billion it recorded for the full year to June 30. That was a record figure. But it's flat, and unlike the ANZ and Westpac, CBA said credit quality was sound, but if you track, look closer between the lines, loan impairment expenses were down one basis points to $322 million. And CBA said, though, that troublesome and impaired assets were up 3% at $6.8 billion, reflecting the ongoing stress in the New Zealand dairy sector. And there was continued stress in the areas of Western Australian Queensland impacted by the mining downturn. And it said income growth was slightly below the number in 2016, the result of low interest rates, a strengthening Australian dollar and higher insurance claims. And higher funding costs were also driving down margins we
0: yeah, and let's hope the housing bubble doesn't burst because that would affect all the banks.
1: That's right. And, uh, Gary, finally, bad news for Australia's media companies. First, the New Zealand Commerce Commission has signalled it will block media company NZME's NMEs taking over sector peer Fairfax, New Zealand. The commission has yet to make its final decision, but it said there were concerns about one outlet controlling nearly 90% of New Zealand's print media market, the second highest level of print media ownership second only to China. The takeover would control New Zealand's two largest news websites, New Code.nz and Stuff.co.nz, which together have a population reach more than four times larger than next biggest domestic news website, and they would own one of New Zealand's two largest commercial radio companies. It also raised concerns about the merger reducing competition in a number of markets, including the markets for premium digital advertising, advertising on Sunday newspapers, and advertising in community newspapers in ten regions throughout New Zealand. So they're still taking submissions to the end of this month. Doesn't
0: look too good, does
1: it? No, and on the other side of the fence, Soft listing volumes in the first quarter at News Corporation and majority owned local real estate business REA Group, and slumping advertising revenue in its traditional publishing business have weighed on the Rupert Murdoch Control Company's earnings. And for the first quarter of 2016 17, News Corp segment earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization fell 35 million US, or 21%, to 130 million. Revenue slipped 2% to 1.97 billion. A news Corp reported a loss of 15 million in the quarter compared with a profit of 175 million in the period last year. Advertising revenue fell 11%, primarily due to weakness in the print market. And News Corp has flagged $40 million of cost cuts this financial year, although you wouldn't think it reading News Corp papers.
0: No, you wouldn't. And that's the second the advertising revenue dropped more than 10%. That's
1: right, that's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we've got a terrific interview with Renzo Scarca from RMIT. He runs the RMIT Activator for startup businesses. And that's fascinating stuff.
0: Yeah, indeed. And it looks as though we're getting real energy into the development of innovation in this country.
1: And that's it for this week. Tune in to us on Twitter at Z or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.